Let's continue our worship together by taking your Bibles, please, and turning with me to the book of Philippians. We'll be in chapter 4, looking at verses 2 through 3. Philippians 4, looking at verses 2 through 3. read for us. Please uh, follow along in your own Bible. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. People, 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 is what the little girl muttered as she ran off the school bus into the house past her father, who was a pastor of great renown. Many of you may be familiar with the name Warren Wiersbe, the former pastor of Moody Church in Chicago. It was clear to him that his daughter was disturbed, and it was clear to him what she was disturbed about, so... She, he follows her up to her room in which she had slammed the door, locked herself in, and he gently knocks, asking, may I come in? And she says, no, you're a people. <laughs> we know what it's like. People can be problematic. The old adage, and we've used it here before, but I think you all know it well, if not just from hearing from actual experience. We say from time to time, to dwell above with the saints in love, oh, that will be glory. But to dwell below with the saints we know, well, that's a different story. (laughs) We get it. We feel the friction of people with personalities that are averse to ours. It's uncomfortable. We rub up against them. They rub us the wrong way. We, we know what it's like to, to actually see other people who claim to be in Christ commit all kinds of deplorable sins. Not just individually, but sometimes against us. There are occasions where we look out among the, the congregation, we, we see our, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we know that we've got this common goal to see the, the glory of God advance through the preaching of the gospel. And sometimes it, we see how other people decide to do that, like their methods, like the way that they decide to do it as opposed to the way that we decide to do it. And we think, that is asinine. That is idiotic. I can't believe that somebody would take that method or that strategy or somebody would spend their time in that way. And conflict can ensue. And then other times there's legitimate concern of false teaching, of aberrant doctrine. There's 
Somebody holds this one position, and they're really convinced. Their, their pastor growing up taught them this. <laughs> and somebody else is on the other side of the fence on this thing because, I mean, they grew up in the same kind of churches, and their pastor taught them that. And all these people with these different personalities and these different methodologies and these different doctrinal backgrounds and these different uh, proclivities to sin are supposed to somehow mix together and be a happy family in the church, uh, beneath the cross of Jesus, of course. <laughs> They're supposed to be this family. And so the old saying is true. There is something that's hard about the actual getting along with one another. The, the, the saints we know. There is a way around this, by the way. If everything that I was just talking about seems uncomfortable to you, there actually is a way to avoid it. And, and that is just simply uh, to be self-protected uh, and lonely. There's a downside, but to be self-protected and to not enter into the fray. What you can do is what I often see, having several years of experience focusing on membership in a church. You could show up to a place like this. It's easier in large churches, by the way. But you can do it in a place like this, and you can be at Faith Bible Church, but not a part of Faith Bible Church. And so you show up, you talk to a few people, you ask them how their week was, you keep things really on the surface. Uh, make sure that when you leave, though, you, you get out of here pretty quickly because somebody might ask you a deep question. <laughs> you will not get hurt that way, I assure you. It is easy for you just to come in and skim along. That's why uh, live stream options can be so dangerous in these days because you're not forced to interact with anybody, but you're like, I went to church. Friends, you watched a preaching service. You did not go to church. <laughs> Church is a gathering, it's an assembly of people, and because of that, it is inevitably messy. The book of Proverbs reminds us that the countenance of, of friends is sharpened as iron sharpens iron. You know, I've never sharpened iron, but I've seen it sharpened, and I know when that happens, things get hot and sparks fly. And so Solomon warns us, hey, look, if you're going to do this thing right, it's going to get hot, and it might get dangerous, but it'll make you better. And so I have to admit, in stepping into a text like this that's so clear, that's so targeted, it would be easy for some of you to think, whether you're visiting or whether you've been here at the church for a long time, like, oh, whoa, man, there must be some problems going on in the church right now if he's going to drill in on conflict. Well, I don't know if this will surprise you. There's always problems going on in a church. <laughs> Surprise. Um, but I want you to know that uh, this is the beauty of sequential exposition. You just kind of work your way through a text, and you happen to be somewhere on a Sunday, and it's like, well, we can't skip it. That would be even more awkward. So you just go with it. And I say that this has been an especially helpful thing for me because even... The pastor here isn't immune from his own conflicts with other individuals in the church. So I, I speak this morning as one who benefits from this text, not one who's mastered it. And I'm only addressing what could be perceived as an elephant in the room to let you know again, the elephant's always there. There's always conflict. So don't try to read into anything. Maybe just take in what you could use from this text, if you are indeed a part of God's church and you know what it's like to bump and bruise other people in the household of God. 
So the question is this. If, if it happens, if we know that it can be painful, if we know that interpersonal relationships are indeed messy, uh, what are we supposed to do about it? Well, I think there's a couple of popular strategies that are out there that you need to be aware of ahead of time that I am going to intentionally use this text to argue against. All right, so popular strategy number one has kind of been hinted at already, and that is isolation and distance. Kid Sandy who's a former mediator legally and a pastor, uh, wrote this fantastic book called Peacemakers, and he wrote a shorter one called Resolving Everyday Conflict. I'd commend both to you. But he actually addresses that we all kind of fall on one end or another of this spectrum when it comes to conflict. He says that some of us, if you imagine like a chart for a moment, some of us will fall to this side and we are peace fakers. Uh, we like to actually pretend that, you know, there's really no problems. There's nothing going on. Everything's fine. You know, we're just like whistling Dixie, coming in and out of church. You know, everything's good. But there could be real issues. Peace faking. And then on the other end of his little spectrum, he has what he calls peace breaking. <laughs> some people have a tendency not just to like shy away from conflict, but some are like, all right, it's on. Let's do this. Maybe their like, motto is, all right, if you're going to make omelets, you're going to have to crack some eggs. We're going to do church. It's going to get messy. And so somebody looks at them wrong, and then all of a sudden they're going to confront them after church and say, all right, let's go. Let's do this. Peace faking, everything's fine. Peace breaking, let's do it. <laughs> the scriptures advocate for something different. I, I don't think that we're looking to find the extremes here. I, I think that the text even we're going to look at today presents a via media, a better way. We've seen in Philippians so far that Paul has certainly valued unity in gospel advance. He's hit it over and over again. He, he is presented... Uh, our, our citizenship in heaven and our, our collective advance of the gospel as something that is, to use an, an alliteration here, highly interpersonal and irenic. <laughs> it is to be peaceful and it is to be collaborative, but it is not individualistic. It is not done alone. In, in, in one chapter 1, verses 27 to 30, he said, we're striving together for the faith of the gospel, like side by side, like gladiators in an arena. He says, this is something we do together. And then he spends all of chapter 2 trying to actually protect the church against any disunity, saying, hey, don't think about yourself, be thinking about others. Take on the example of Christ. Humble yourself, because God values that. Get along with one another. Work out your collective salvation as a group, knowing that God is working in and among you. Hey, follow the example of Timothy. He's a real selfless guy. He gets along with people. Follow the, the example of Epaphroditus. He dies to self. I mean, like, you take a fourth of the book of Philippians, and it's all about getting along with one another. But the overall message is about advancing the gospel. And so why we normally think of advancing the gospel as something that we do by ourselves, Paul blows up that paradigm and says, no, it is inescapably interpersonal. And so not only must you advance the gospel, you must do it as a team, and you must get along and be happy about it. And so he hits it generally. But then he does something stunning. As he's winding up the letter, like it, it, chapter 4, he's, he's done. 
He's spoken in generalities, and he can't let it ride. He says, I've got to call something out. I'm aware of a situation that is going on in the church, and this would blow our minds if this ever happened in a context like this, where, where two women in the church are actually called out by name and said, you guys better learn to get along. And in doing this, he is actually underscoring the importance of the interpersonal. I mean, if he's willing to take this kind of risk, he is saying, hey, this really matters. And it's through this, these two little verses that he confronts conflict in a most, and I, and I want you to catch this comforting way. He confronts conflict in a most comforting way. Do you remember last week in verse 1 of chapter 4? I, I made a, a, a point to emphasize how loving and kind and gentle Paul is being with them. Notice we're only one verse removed from verse 1, in which he calls them brothers who he longs for and loves, his joy, his crown, his beloved. Paul is not angry. So, we would think that a public call-out would necessarily mean that he is ticked off. <laughs> Please don't divorce it from its context. Paul loves these people. And he is going to address this issue publicly because he so values their harmony in the Lord. And in so doing, he is giving us, in this text, a couple of strategies for agreeing together as gospel partners. If it's inevitable that we disagree, what we have here are a couple of strategies for agreeing together as gospel partners, even though it may sometimes be difficult. These two strategies are, are, are focus on different angles. One is interpersonal. The other is external. There's an external element. There's an interpersonal element. The interpersonal is there in verse 2. And the principle is this, individual intentionality to agree in the Lord. When we uh, run into conflict with other believers, we should individually be intentional about finding agreement in the Lord. Individual intentionality to agree in the Lord. Notice the verse again. He says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now, we know that something significant has happened here because Paul has indeed publicly confronted this situation. It underscores its seriousness. I think we need to understand that um, we think of Paul as like this bold, out front, you know, kind of a leader, but the guy is really compassionate. He is, he is ultra encouraging. In fact, I only know personally of two other instances in the entire New Testament where he confronts someone by name because of something wrong that they may be doing. But he is ultra generous at using names to actually call out and highlight the good things that people do. Just read through Romans 16 this afternoon if you want a great example of that. He ends every letter saying, hey, thank this guy for what he was doing, and I commend this guy for what he's doing, and I commend to you this guy. He's using names all the time, but very, very rarely does he actually mention a name in a negative context. And I think that we need to actually feel the weight of what's happening here. I mean, I, could you imagine 
if I actually said in the context of this service today, all right, John and Mark, you guys need to agree in the Lord. I mean, you, you would think, what in the world happened this week? <laughs> For him to mention their names in the context of the sermon. And yet that is exactly what Paul has done. He's written a letter which actually represents his apostolic authority. He knows that they're going to read this publicly out loud in front of the whole church. See, think less like an email, more like a public announcement. <laughs> they weren't getting this sent straight to their smartphones for individual digestion. Paul knew that this would be read in the context of the corporate gathering, and yet he mentions it anyway, and you're thinking, like, what in the world? Why, why would he do this? Because, listen to this, friends, here's the principle that's implied. Unity in a church matters. It matters. It is a big deal. He's already been talking about it generally, and now he's even going to be specific about it, and this is huge. I grew up in a context that actually dismissed unity. <laughs> it kind of downplayed it. Like, yeah, it's important if you can get it, but it doesn't matter all that much. Now, it won't surprise you that the church that I grew up in was a split, which split off from a church split. So it was a little bit in the DNA to be dismissive, just to say that. <laughs> but we used to think of unity as something like compromise. You know, like, Oh, that's what, like, uh, you know, like what those hippie churches would do. They want unity, you know. Like, we, we are, are actually, like, we're, we're a church that protects doctrine. We're a church that fights for the faith. We're a church that will blaze a trail for the gospel. And so we were actually, like, downplaying unity. And what I actually see now as I read my Bible more and more is that this is a big deal to Jesus. We read earlier John 17. That the last portion of Jesus' high priestly prayer, and it was fascinating this week as I was reading John Owen writing on that very verse, and he, he puts it in its Old Testament context. Jesus is praying a high priestly prayer, and I want you to get the visuals of what was going on. That high priest on the Day of Atonement would actually take incense in his hands and have a censer hanging off of his arm. And he was about to step past a curtain into the very presence of God, and before he would step through the curtain, he would take that, that incense, he would drop it in the censer, and it would begin to smoke, the fire having come from the, the sacrifice that was just made. And, and when he goes in, he's not even supposed to enter until that whole holy place is filled with the smoke of the sacrifice that had just been made so that it would be a sweet smell unto the Lord. And it will be at that point that he would step past the veil and intercede on behalf of the people. And this priest would be in the presence of God, talking to him on their behalf. And that is what Jesus is doing here. It isn't just a random Bible verse. This is what the high priest of the universe is doing on behalf of his people. And what does he say in the smoke of his sacrifice before God Almighty? Make them one. Even those who have yet to believe, make them one even as you and I are one. I mean, we're talking about Trinitarian closeness. He says it three different times in that text. It's what like the high priest of the universe intercedes for and wants on behalf of his people. We don't downplay that. 
And that's exactly why Paul has made such a big deal out of this, because it is that for which Christ died. The whole mission of God was not just to save individuals and thereby perpetuate their loneliness, but to save a people, to ransom a people who would actually honor his name. And so when we are are coming into Christ, we're coming into a group, a family, a body. We're stone in his temple. We are part of his entity. And that is why, friends, like loneliness today in those who are outside of Christ is epidemic. True fulfillment, like relational fulfillment, is actually found in relationship with Christ, and that is experienced in relationship with his people. You can't divorce the two from one another. And so I would ask just by, by way of application, like initially before we even dive into the rest of this text, are you even in Christ? Are you part of his family? Because that is one of the reasons for which he died. You have been separated from him because of your sin and rebellion, and he wants to reconcile you back to himself and his people. And you can't divorce those two. And the only way back is through exclusive reliance upon Jesus Christ and Him alone. And so if that is indeed true of you, and you know that this is what He wants, guess what's not an option? Well, the first thing that's not an option is peace faking. There there is no way that we could just remain isolated and distant from the people of God, pretending like they don't really matter. That the 1 John chapter 4, verses 19 to 21 make this clear. We can't say that we love God if we do not love His people. Do you remember what John goes on to say? He says, how can you say that you love God whom you have not seen if you do not love your brother whom you have seen? If you don't care, if you have this comfortable distance from other people who were genuinely converted and in Christ, I think it's to say something to you about whether or not you are or are not in Christ. If you're totally fine at being aloof from and distant to the people of God, it is communicating that you may not actually be in his family. Knowing that Jesus values this also excludes peace-breaking, of course. Peace-breaking. For whatever, whatever it is in people's psyche that actually causes them to think that the righteous thing to do is to stir up some conflict, uh, the Scriptures would say otherwise. I think one of the clearest passages that, that would warn us against this tendency over here on this side of things uh, would be that of uh, the fruit of the Spirit as it's contrasted with the works of the law in Galatians chapter 6. And so often, you know what we think of as like really heinous sin that reveals someone to be outside the kingdom of God, proof positive, especially those who grew up in really conservative homes. The big no-no sin is anything sexual. And sexual sin is indeed offensive to God. But we think of that as disgusting and horrible. And it is. But you know what we downplay? The social. We value the sexual and we downplay the social. What I mean by that is like we actually have this tendency to like mark sexual sin and say, nope, 
don't do that, that's horrible, I'm going to stay away from that, that guy's in sin if he's doing it. But we ourselves could be flaming jerks to other people and totally dismiss it. And guess what? The scriptures will not allow for such a bifurcation. When you read Galatians chapter 6, and you see the works of the flesh, which is what characterizes the person out of Christ, with the fruit of the Spirit, which characterizes the person who is in Christ, you will notice something stunning. Half of the things that are evidences of someone who are not in Christ aren't just sexual, they are social. You want to just hear a few of them? I'd encourage you to look at this when you have more time this afternoon, but verse 19 of Galatians 6 says this, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, and you're hearing that list and everyone's going, yep, 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 God hates that. And then it continues. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. You're thinking, when's he going to stop? <laughs> and then he gets back to drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. My friends, just guilt by associations, the fact that drunkenness and orgies are in the same list as envy and jealousy should tell you something. God hates it. So peace-breaking, not an option. Peace-faking, not an option. So we get back to our question, what's the way forward? What would Paul then have us do, knowing that this conflict at times seems to be inevitable? We'll look back at your text, and I want you to notice the repetition of the verb, I entreat. He says, I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche. Are you seeing what he does here? He actually equally tells them both that they have a responsibility in the Lord. He doesn't say, hey, I entreat or I exhort Yodia to make things right with Syntyche. He says, I entreat you and I entreat you. He is equally laying the responsibility on them both and saying that you both have a charge from God Almighty to make things right with one another in the Lord. There is, individually intention, there is individual intentionality. Each one of them are 100% responsible for fixing this matter. And they're to agree. The text that says, and this is a copy and paste from Philippians 2.2, 2, it says, I entreat you, Yodia and, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. But that is the same phrase that Paul used back in chapter 2, verse 2. He's saying like, hey, what this means is that you guys are thinking the same way. You have the same focus. You have the same mindset. I know what you're thinking. Like, there's no way that we could absolutely think the same way as everyone else. I get that, generally speaking. But he's not asking for total uniformity. He's asking for unity. He's saying have the same focus, have the same mindset, work through the same paradigm. And what was the paradigm that he actually like, described in great detail in Philippians chapter 2? It was the paradigm of Christ himself, who would actually put himself, like, just, I mean, he would die to self so as to serve those that he loved. <laughs> he said, this is the way that you think. 
This is the mindset that is being modeled for you. This is how you are to agree. You are to agree in the Lord. You are both to acknowledge that there are some things that are bigger than you, and that is that you belong to Him and that you are focused on His particular mission. Friends, we've got to get the math right here. I think we normally think of conflict resolution as a 50-50. Like, you do your part, and I do my part, and what God is saying, no, it's 100-100. You take 100% responsibility for agreeing with this person in the Lord in whatever way you can, period. And then the other person, there's no connection, there's no semicolon, there's no and, Now the other person, you take 100% responsibility for finding what agreement you can in the Lord. As soon as you get into 50-50 territory, you have nullified the principle that Paul himself has stated here. He says, you own it. Find agreement in who you are. Remember that you are both God's children. You are part of Christ's bride. You are heaven's citizen. Remember what it is that you want. You want the glory of God and the advance of the gospel. You want the highest good for the other person at the cost of self. And so when conflict comes, friends, we must own our responsibility to find common ground in the Lord. And may I just give two simple phrases that I think will flesh this out. I'm going to be really practical for a moment. I've got two verses. I've got to make it practical or we're going to be done too soon and everybody's going to complain that they got to go to lunch early. And I certainly can't have that happen. two-part strategy for finding agreement to in the Lord. The first thing would be this. You need to know where to go. And then second, you need to know what to do when you get there. Where to go. Uh, Friends, this is so important. You go to the source. Go to the source. You go to the source of the disagreement. You go to the individual that has disagreed with you or has sinned against you. I I think that if we, and I've seen this in myself over the last year and I've already confessed it, so now I can preach on it. (laughs) I've seen this tendency for me not to go straight to the source, but to go to some kind of conduit. To go to another individual. And let me tell you what happens when, when, when I don't go directly to the source, to the person, we're going to have major problems on our hands because when I go to another individual, it's only going to end up one of two ways, likely, drama or gossip. If I go here to the conduit, if I go to person number three, what's going to happen is if they tell that person, I've got drama. If they go and tell anybody else, I've got gossip. And I've unleashed a whole host of troubles on the entire church. But if I would only back it up and go directly to the source and say, hey, you did this and this offended me. Like, take the courage to say that. You know what the person, they probably don't even know that it happened but they will actually respect the fact that you came to them and it will help make things right. Does it guarantee that things will be made right in the first pass? Absolutely not. But let me tell you what will guarantee they go wrong. Going somewhere else. It should be a rule around here. We should be death on one another. Like if somebody comes to you about another individual, you need to bring it right back and say, have you talked to them about it yet? We cannot entertain such things in this church. It is wrong. It says 
make it right with one another. You two agree in the Lord. Now, I'll give some additional principles, but first of all, we need to know where to go. <laughs> we don't need to do the backhanded like, hey, I need some advice about my conflict with so-and-so, and then you run them in the ground for 20 minutes. No, what you need to do is figure it out and go to the individual directly to begin. So you say, all right, I need to know where to go. Or the second thing is this, you need to know what to do when you get there. <laughs> well, what does Paul say that you need to do? Well, it's very clear. He says, hey, you need to agree in the Lord. You need to establish commonality on the things you do agree on, and then you can ask about what you disagree on. So establish commonality. So I would go to the individual and say, look, I just want to affirm that I know that we are both in Christ, and I know that we both love him, and I know that we both want to see his name honored. I mean, like, there's a whole host of things that you can agree with them on, and I know that we want the Lord to be honored, and I know that we need unity. Uh, I mean, like, you both serve a holy God. You both have been saved by Christ. You both want to see the gospel advance to the nations. I mean, like, there's so much you can agree on, and then you need to ask about that which you disagree. So find agreement in the Lord, but then find out what you disagree on. And I'm going to be a little technical here because we're going to have four different things that we could disagree on, but they're going to be in two different categories. What are the things that most believers will disagree on in a church? Well, sometimes it's doctrine. And sometimes it's sin. Doctrinal issues and sin issues, these are things that you should try to fix, try to find agreement on, call the person to repentance, or you need to repent. And if it doesn't work, if it doesn't work, you bump it up. I'll explain what that means in a minute. But you try, and then you bump it up. If it is a matter of biblical principle, I'm talking biblical doctrine, they're off in their doctrine, or it is actual sin. They have sinned against you. You could label it as a sin. You try to fix it, and if not, you bump it up. But listen, there is a second category, friends, and can we just do some differentiation here? I think what's going on with Euodia and Syntyche is not doctrinal, and it's actually not sin. Because in every other instance that this happens in the New Testament, Paul labels that. And it actually explains, like, you're off on doctrine, you're off in sin, somebody needs to repent. Here, we don't know what's going on, and so it falls into a different category. This isn't a matter of principle, but it actually seems to be a matter of preference. And the two categories of preference are this, personality and methodology. Personality and methodology. Friends, some people just operate differently than you do. And if you go to them and you try to make things right and you determine that this is a matter of personality, you don't bump it up, you let it go. You just let it go. Did you know that the Scriptures command us not only to forgive one another but to forbear with one another? Do you know the difference between the two? Forgive means I let it go because you sinned against me. Forbear means I'm just going to put up with it even if it gets on my nerves. <laughs> I know that some of you want to take everything and turn it into a matter of forgiveness, and yet the scriptures say, no, sometimes you just forbear. And so if it is a matter of personality, or it is a matter of, secondly, methodology, like you prefer to train your kids by sending them to a Christian school, and somebody else prefers to train their kids and advance the gospel by doing homeschool, that is never going to be a thing that anyone in this church should ever argue about. And yet I've seen such arguments, <laughs> not here, but in other places. 
So do you notice the difference? If it's a biblical principle and it doesn't work out, you're going to bump it up. We'll talk about that in a second. If it is just a matter of preference, like personality or methodology, we're going to let it go. We're going to try, but then we're going to let it go. Paul says, agree in the Lord. I'll tell you this, I, I know what is clear here. What, what is not acceptable is just keep floating along and hope that it all goes away. Paul says, you guys, I, I'm entreating you, I'm exhorting you, I am insisting. He's using an authoritative word that you fix this in the Lord, both of you, 100%. And so the strategy for agreeing in the Lord is first internal intentionality in the Lord. Interpersonal intentionality, excuse me. Now the second strategy is this, it's external. Here's an external. <laughs> Accepting help from trusted gospel partners. There may come a time where you need to accept help from gospel or trusted gospel partners. Notice what Paul goes on to say, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. Notice he uses the word yes and also. He's not talking about a different situation. He's talking about the same one. And here he actually says, hey, you know what? I'm not just going to leave this disagreement up to you, ladies. I'm going to bring in some outside help on this because you may need it. It is, yeah, you guys take 100% responsibility for what's going on, but even with you taking 100% responsibility, I'm going to call this true yoke fellow to actually come and help you guys out. Now, the, 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 uh, the, the main, like, those of you who like to, to geek out on uh, Bible interpretation stuff, uh, who is the uh, true yoke fellow? Man, I've, I can't believe how much ink has been spilled over this. <laughs> Uh, but if you're interested, nobody knows. Uh, some people think that true yoke fellow is a dude's name, but that's not very likely because there's no names that we know of in like the Greco-Roman record that go by this. So if it is a name, somebody made it up. And furthermore, nobody n uses an adjective true to talk about someone's name. I'm not like the true Justin. Well, never mind. I, there are, I'm not going to say. Um, The, yes. <laughs> Some people think that it is actually um, uh, like a metaphor, like he's addressing the congregation as the companion, and they're all supposed to be like working together with him, and yet it's a singular. That's not going to work. Some people actually think that because the word companion is sometimes used to describe a wife, that Paul is referring to his wife. Never thought of that one. It's awful creative. But the, the problem is it's a masculine name, so it's not going to work. Some people think Epaphroditus. Some people think Luke. Here's what we do know. Whoever it is is an individual, and that title actually communicated something about said individual. I mean, true companion leads me to believe that this is a trusted gospel worker that was a close companion of Paul, kind of like the name says. I mean, I would say that for two reasons. It is a real person. We don't know his name, but he is a trusted companion of Paul. The reason I say that is because, number one, true is an adjective that Paul uses to describe other friends in ministry. He says it of Timothy in the book of 1 Timothy. He says it of Titus in the book of Titus. He calls them his true sons in the faith. Well, here he says true companion, talking about a real person. And then the other one is that word companion. Uh, you, uh, Leo, you're going to appreciate this. It's the word comrade. So 
You know, like it, it is actually this of like someone who is an official partner with someone else. Like this is someone who, who fights alongside another. He, this is not like hypothetical. This is my buddy. This is my comrade. This is the one who serves with me in arms. And so we know that he is actually saying, hey, I want this guy that you guys all know and trust, and if you want my guess, I'm going to think it's Luke, to actually come alongside and help you ladies out. And what's so fascinating to me is the word help. It's only used in this particular form in one other place in the New Testament, and that's in Luke chapter 5. For those of you who grew up in Sunday school, you remember that particular story where the disciples are pulling in this huge load of fish because Jesus told them to to go to this particular spot and fish. And like the boat is sinking. And so then another boat comes alongside, and they actually help them get the, the fish into both boats, And the boats even began sinking. It's that heavy of a load. But they needed help. They needed assistance. Have you ever had that before? Where, Like you try to pick up something heavy off a shelf and you're like, oh, this thing's going down. Somebody help me. (laughs) That's exactly what the word is communicating. And he's saying, ladies, you you work it out. I know that you're trying. I know that you're struggling. I know that you're putting in the effort. I know that you're both going to give 100%. But you may actually need, in this case, the true yoke fellow to come along and to help you through this. There is a time in conflict resolution, even within a church, where you actually go for outside help. And I know we're so private, we don't want anybody up in our business. I get it. But Paul says, get over it. You need people up in your business from time to time because sometimes the furniture's heavy and it's awkward. There's some stuff that we can just handle. But there's some stuff that we need help with. And so he is saying, let other people come along and help. And friends, this isn't just in one place. This is throughout the Scriptures. I won't even appeal to Proverbs. I'll only reference two passages for you. The first would be Matthew 18, where in that specific instance in Matthew 18, you have Jesus doing teaching, and he's describing all of his followers as little children. And he says, as children, you need guidance, you need help. And there will come times in which someone offends you. That means that they sinned against you. And he says, if that happens, what you need to do is to go to the person that offended you. Remember that? He says, go to them and try to work it out. And guess what he assumes? That sometimes it doesn't work out. And you know what Jesus says next? He says, now go get outside help. He says, find two or three who will be able to come and basically mediate and oversee the situation. And if that doesn't resolve the conflict, then tell it to the church. Jesus himself was the first one to say, go to the person individually first. But it's okay, sometimes it doesn't work, so it's, you need to bring in occasionally two or three more to help. That's Matthew 18. Paul does the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You may remember that passage in which people are bringing one another to court. Somebody has ripped someone else off in the church financially, and we're talking big time, to the degree that they're going to go to court over it. And Paul says, what are you doing? Why would you take this to the court? Do you not have a godly person in the church who can handle this? And then he reminds them, hey folks, you have to be able to deal with each other's situations because one day you're going to be judging angels. You're going to be ruling the world on God's behalf and you're going to have to make some heavy decisions. And so at least like right now, you guys can make some heavy decisions with one another. 1 Corinthians 6, read it. 
1 Corinthians 6, Matthew 18. The principles all over Scripture. Friends, there are times in which we need outside help. It is not only acceptable, it is appropriate, it is right, and so you bring in help as needed. And so who do you look for? Well, you look for trusted gospel workers, trusted companions, people that are characterized by faithfulness. Now, I, I want to be clear here. It doesn't even have to be a pastor. It doesn't have to be a pastor. It can be. I would encourage you to go to other godly individuals in the church. But then the second thing I would encourage you to do, and this is so important, once you enlist the help, receive it. I think sometimes we try to get people on our side and hope that that will win it, but if they don't fall on our side of the issue, we just keep fighting. And what Paul is saying here is, no, trust the true yoke fellow. Let him mediate. He has the outside perspective. Friends, when we get involved in conflict, we lose all objectivity. (laughs) We need it. Uh, You know the old saying, right? Like, I can't see the back of my own head, and I win every argument that I have with myself. That's the way it works. I always think I'm right. If I didn't think I was right, I would have told you so, and we would have fixed this thing. (laughs) I think I'm right. My kids, well, some of my kids are here. Kids, please don't be offended. But sometimes they go, and they play outside. Thankfully, this time of year, it's not that bad. But during the summer, they smell. (laughs) They come in, and they stink. And guess what? They don't know that they stink. They've been wrapped up in what they were doing outside. They're nose blind to what it was like to be outside. And sometimes, friends, we just stink. And we can't smell it. And, like, the kindest thing your wife could do to you, man, is, like, say, hey, did you put deodorant on? In interpersonal conflict, you may be the one that stinks and just have someone do a sniff check for you. (laughs) Hey, you know what's going on here? This is the situation. Let the other person speak because you're going to spin it toward your particular view. So here's what we're going through. What do you smell? (laughs) And let them do their thing. Trust them. So accept the help. Trust the help. And then the last thing I would say is this. Be willing to be the help. Whoever this true yoke fellow is, I don't think that he was thinking, man, I can't wait to receive this letter because I hope that I get to get up in somebody else's business in conflict. Nobody likes that. I get it. And yet the text says, hey, just as Euodia and Syntyche have a responsibility, there will be some members of a church who have a responsibility to get up in it. To get up in it. One guy described it this way. I thought it was really helpful. He says, when temperatures start to rise, watch for cool heads and wise hearts to weigh in. They'll be encouraging both parties to stop and to stoop low in humility in order to effectively dish out each other a a generous helping of grace. My friends, don't just sit on the sidelines and watch the conflict grow. If you know that's going on, jump in and help, please. We got a fire on our hands, and this thing could spread. I think this is what Paul was saying to the Corinthians in chapter 11. He says, I hear that there are divisions among you, and there are, they must be so, so that those who are mature will be made evident among you. It is when conflict ensues that the mature will shine. They don't draw much attention to themselves, but they know how to intervene and work their way into a situation and say, Hey, brother, I think you're off here. 
It's the way it works. Don't reject that. It's what God intends. I love how Paul adds this positive note when he says, true yoke fellow, help these ladies out. And then notice how he describes them. He's not angry. Listen to the rest of the verse. Those who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. What's he doing here? He's reminding them of their past together and their future together. He says, ladies and all involved, I want you to remember that you labored beside me, side by side with me. I love the status that that Paul gives women in like this early Greco-Roman culture. For all of those who would try to dismiss Christianity as as some type of chauvinistic thing, you need to understand that it accorded women high status. And while Paul's other teachings make it clear that they weren't teaching and preaching according to 1 Timothy, they played significant roles alongside him, whether that was showing hospitality or whether that was their generosity in supporting its ministry or whether that was praying or whether that was preaching the gospel to other people. You'll find out, looking, by the way, at a history of the church in Philippi, that it was predominantly female. That means some female in that church was doing some active evangelism with some other females who were yet to be in that church. And Paul says, remember those days when we were working side by side to see so-and-so saved, when we were like laboring to, to have this church established. Think back to the past and think ahead to the present. Because not only have we labored together side by side, but Clement, another brother, and then the other workers who are there, all of our names together are written in the book of life. You go to a town like Philippi, and it was known that in a polis like that, uh, you would actually have a, an official town register. It, it was known who belonged to that particular establishment, that particular city. And so the, the, the Greco-Roman among them, the, 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 the Gentile, would have picked up on this analogy. But those familiar with the Old Testament would be even more familiar with it because you look in the book of Daniel and in the book of Exodus and you already see throughout the Scriptures that God has this record that He's keeping of the people who will experience eternal life one day. And He's saying, hey, you all are going to end up in the same place. <laughs> Not only do you have a common past, but you have a common future, and so you will be able to get along in the Lord. Beloved, one way to endure with grace and offer to live by grace is to demonstrate that to others, knowing the grace you yourself have received. You don't deserve to have your name written in that thing, and they don't either. (laughs) It was all of grace. And you will be with them forever one day. I've enjoyed this week, uh, we've had a busier week because of a members meeting tonight and I have the opportunity, all of us have as pastors and elders, of meeting with people who want to be a part of our church and we'll present them tonight to the membership in that meeting. I love that, I love doing that. I found something really interesting though in, in, in two of the, meet- the last two meetings I had this week, one yesterday, the other on um, Thursday. Uh, the individuals when asked, why do you want to be a part of this church? said something that I think would be easy to have in either or, but they made it a both and. They said uh, expositional teaching of the word, 
and the fellowship and love of the church. Two people said that. I was like on cloud nine because I know that you can normally have one or the other, but very rarely do you see both. You know, the churches that are like really fraternal and close, like they're kind of shallow on the teaching part of things, and the ones that are stalwart on the teaching can be kind of like cold and dry with one another. To whatever degree this brother and this sister like actually make this to be true, I want you to know that as we come to the end of this thing, I'm not thinking, man, this thing's a dumpster fire, man. We better fix what's going on in the church. No, I, I love what the, the Lord is doing here. It's amazing. And I think part of that not only is our commitment in our church covenant to uphold the doctrines of Scripture, but it's that other line that's in there, and I hope that it resonates in your heart, where we actually say that we will strive to uphold the unity of the gospel. That we will fight for oneness with one another. Friends, this is what we have committed to, to follow our Lord, to be faithful to truth, and to be fervent in love with one another. And so I want to leave you with just three simple reminders. The first is this, friends, conflict is inevitable. I want to assure you, it's okay. It's okay if from time to time you bump into someone else. You're not a spiritual loser. <laughs> it's just kind of the way it works. It's all right it actually may be a sign that you're trying in the right way. If you never get embroiled with any conflict with someone, you may be a little too self-protective. It happens. It happened to Yodia and Syntyche, and, and they were like models in the church. They were examples of faithfulness. So I, I want to assure you that it may happen, but I also want to remind you that it's not okay to let it persist. Jesus died that we would be one and just as we would be concerned about some form of sexual sin, so also let us be concerned about social sin with one another. It is not something to be dismissed and swept under the rug. It is something to be addressed. And then thirdly and finally, I want to remind you that we have a responsibility to act. We act interpersonally, going to the individual, seeking agreement in the Lord, and guess what? Sometimes it doesn't always work, and that's okay. And so there's something external in which we bring in and rely on other godly outside help. And through this, and through this we can be that family beneath the cross of Jesus, bought by his blood, demonstrating to the world the unity that is to evidence those who truly belong to God.